0: This is the Blaze Radio on demand. Will Kane S.E. Cup. R.
1: Kane and Cup.
0: Kane and Cup. Only on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: Good Saturday morning to you. The name of the show is Kane and Cup, but today it's Kane. No cup. Just me. Overflowing. Spilled out on the table. Nothing to hold me in, nothing to constrain me, nothing to keep me organized. Just Kane, no cup. SE Cup is off today. I am Will Kane, hanging out with you for the next three hours. I want to make you my co host. Let's see if you can do it. You hold me in, you constrain me, you organize me, you come at me. Back and forth, you and I, conversation. That's the way I like it. We talk with each other about the suit that could take down Obamacare, possibly the most underreported story of the year. There is a lawsuit pending out there, a decision imminent within days that could spell the end of Obamacare. We'll talk about ugly words today. It's becoming one of my favorite subjects. The constant redefinition of the English language, not by text not by history, not by tradition, by consensus and feelings and mobs. Whether or not the word is redskin or illegal immigrant, the constant redefinition of the English language. We'll talk about that a little later with Sally Cohn, who wrote an article at CNN.com that says the I word is the new N word. Now, I also want to ask you if life is more like soccer Or baseball. There was, you know, about a week ago, I guess it was. Kind of uh, a big uproar as Ann Coulter said that soccer is an affront to American exceptionalism. Soccer is a cancer that could spell the end of really what is, I think, the core of what it is to be an American. Individualism. Soccer represents the collective. Soccer represents deference to other cultures, to the world, the end of American exceptionalism. But David Brooks wrote a column in the New York Times this morning that suggests life is more like soccer than it is the all-American pastime of baseball. And he takes it pretty deep, talking about whether or not, not so much it reflects American exceptionalism, but whether or not life itself emulates a game that relies on teamwork, that is defined by your surroundings, your landscapes, your context, or one where you individually more than collectively determine the outcome of your life. I think it's a fascinating conversation I like to think about, and I'll be honest with you. My own professional and personal life right now make me think about what is it that determines your course? what is it that determines the things that happen in your life? Look, here's the deal. I just used this phrase i said uh, I want to be honest with you. Here's what I want to do for the next three hours, okay? I don't, I want to, uh, I want to cut the BS, all right? Um, So much in this business, these people that have microphones in front of them, whether or not they're big microphones on top of a radio table or they're little microphones attached to your shirt on television set, it's BS. And I don't mean that in the cliched traditional sense of uh, it's overproduced, it's planned. It's drama created in the back rooms, in the green rooms, in the producer rooms that is compelled to go out on stage and perform for you. So you sit there eyes wide open and mouth agape. It's not just that. It is that. But it's not just that. It's BS because... We, these people like me who sit here and talk to you, you know what? That's not right. We don't talk to you. We talk at you. These people like me that talk at you are posers. Nine out of ten of us, we're posers. And what I mean by that is we we put on like clothing and play characters, and drape ourselves in facades that are all designed to make you see a certain image that we want you to see. Now, how we define what that image will be, oh, uh, some of us stick our fingers up in the wind and try to decide what it is you want to hear. Others of us play the contrarian and decide they'll be the devil's advocate, or they'll just be the devil. The point I'm making is it's all b s. Who is authentic? Who's real? I don't know, but I want to talk to you, and that's what I want to be. You know my wife said, you know what you uh, she said to me, Everybody has their own little like armchair psychologist filter through which they see the world. and it's not just about media. It's about how we interact with each other. You go to a party, you go to a a, a barbecue. You know, why, why did why did Larry act that way? You know, why, why, I don't understand why he said that thing. You know, you couldn't, every compliment he gives me, it's like cloaked and also a, a, a subtle jab. You know, you go home in the car with your wife on the way home from these gatherings, you know, like, why did they act that way? We all play armchair psychologists. My wife says that for me, the main filter through which I judge people's actions is uh, insecurity versus confidence. Well, that person did that because they were insecure about X or Y or Z, and that compelled them to make a joke about you, or poke fun at your hobby, or whatever it may be. But increasingly, I find that my filter is becoming real or fake, poser or authentic. It's like I'm reverting to eighth grade again, you know. That person, that's just uh, projecting an image. And again, it's not just about media. I think about all the conversations, some of which we'll have today, about banning words, creating new uh, words that exist outside the realm of uh, acceptable discourse, all of it is image projection. I'm going to tell you that red skin is a bad word. Whether or not it is doesn't matter, but I'm, I'm projecting my virtue to you. Don't you understand? That's what I'm telling you. I'm a good person. Everything is projection. Everything is image creation. Everything is BS. That seems to be the filter through which I'm gravitating towards. Now, maybe that's also connected to whether well, or not they're insecure or confident, whether or not they can be real, whether confident, just being real. I'm curious what you think. You know, what is your wife <laughs> and what does your husband tell you your filter is? How is it you judge everybody in the way that they're acting? 888-900-3393. I really do want you to co-host this with me. I really do want you to tell me. What it is you think um, is the reason people act the way they do. I know it seems like a tangent right off the bat. What the hell is Will talking about? I'm talking about the way I want to spend my time with you for the next three hours. I'm talking about being real. And In order to be real, you and I hang out. We have a conversation. We talk. We disagree. You think "redskin" is a bad word? You think illegal immigrant is a slur? You tell me. I'll tell you why you're wrong. But it'll be real. It'll be authentic. It won't be BS. I won't tell you what you want to hear. I won't tell you what I think you want to hear. I won't try to create an image of myself for you to follow me on Twitter or Facebook and become my fan. I'll just be the guy you're BSing with. With no BS, though. Let's start out with this this morning. Immigration reform. I want your three-point plan. How do we fix this problem? The immediate problem before us, okay? 90,000 unaccompanied minors. That's the projection over the year. 90,000 unaccompanied minors coming up from El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras through what is undoubtedly a treacherous journey on top of trains, on top of train cars, through cartel and gang-infested land in Mexico to cross the Rio Grande into Texas, 90,000 of them. What's your three-point plan on how to fix this crisis? 888-900-3393, I'll give you mine. I'll give you my three-point plan on how we begin to fix this immigration crisis. Tell me also, by the way, what is your filter? That question remains open. What's your filter? Real, fake, authentic, BS, insecure, confident? It's my two questions for you. We'll start with immigration reform when we come back on Kane and Cup.
0: This is Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. <laughs> 888
2: Kane and Cup returns now. Uh-oh. Says Rocky with an eye on Twitter. It's Will Kane. Unleashed and slightly censored. Hashtag, Cupless Kane. And then, I'm not gonna pronounce this guy's Twitter handle because I did once on the air and I didn't even see it coming where he basically uh, pulled one of those Simpsons prank calls on me where I pronounced his name and it turned out to be a cuss word. So I'm not... It doesn't look like a problem right now, but I'm still not going to put myself in this position. But he tweets. Now Will Kane can pronounce words any way he wants without mom correcting him. That's right. Pronounce it any way I want. (laughs) Ephemeral. Ephemeral, Jose. I got that one down. I'm like President Bush. Fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, whatever. You know, whatever, however it goes. Beth Ann on Twitter says, Well, Kane, if you're a poser, you're one of the best. I have a pretty good BS detector. I don't. I don't think that I am. I'm just telling you, most people are. I don't know about in life. Maybe in life, yeah, I think in life, projecting images to you of who they want you to believe them to be. But definitely, the people that sit in chairs like, um, like me, most of them are. Um, you know, on that note, you know, I got into." Uh, a thing on The View a few weeks ago with Whoopi Goldberg where she told me that I was uh, speaking like a typical white boy, right? And everybody got all offended and up in arms about it. I, here's what I would say on this note of authenticity. Whoopi Goldberg is actually one of my favorite people I've come across in this business. I don't agree with Whoopi on much, but agreement has never been a prerequisite of any friendships that I've ever had in life. Authenticity is. And She's real. That's a necessary but not sufficient component as far as I'm concerned on most of these things. She's real. Whoopi Goldberg is authentic, and I like that in a human being. And then you move forward, and you tell me what you think, and I tell you how you're wrong, and you tell me why you think I'm wrong, and then I tell you that's irrational. And nobody gets mad, nobody gets upset. We're just being real. And then we laugh at a joke that's real, and we move on. I like that. Real quick, let's go to Mike in Maryland who uh, wants to speak on the topic of filtered words.
3: Yes, you know, it's, these people say these things and uh, they try to say, change the definition and the meaning of words in order to sell their agenda. And it, to handle it, you know, you listen to it, you get angry, you get disgusted. And it's like going through a denial phase. But then you stop and you really have to get, you know, other people's opinions, weigh them, listen to both sides of it, and try to bring something positive out of it if you can. If it cannot be positively changed, then you discard it. But when you can positively change it, you go with it and you use it.
2: Yeah, you know, I, th- I think that the, uh, this, this argument is constantly confused with the idea that there's no such thing as offensive words. Every time I make this argument that you can't allow public discourse or your behavior to be dictated by banning certain words to the corner of the room to sit in the dunce chair or making certain words verboten, they, thou shalt not be spoken, the suggestion they seem to be hearing is that I'm saying there's no such thing as an offensive word, which is not the case. It's just uh, you keep elevating new ones and banning new ones, and you don't end up accomplishing, I think, what you want to accomplish, which is changing people's thoughts. The thoughts exist independent of the words. The man that says the ugly word thinks it without the necessity of the word. See what I'm saying, Mark? Right, right. So you don't need to ban the word. You don't accomplish banning the thought yeah, I don't think we can filter our way to virtuousness. Thank you, Mark, for the call. Let's move on if we can now. I want to talk about uh, immigration reform. I asked you before the break, give me your plan on how to fix the flood of unaccompanied illegal minors, immigrants across our border. Um, 888-900-3393. Let's fix this problem together. How do we deal with this immigration crisis? Now, I want to tell you at the outset of this conversation, I was four and... I think I remain for some congressional legislative version of the DREAM Act. The DREAM Act was the legislative proposal that suggested any children under a certain age who were brought here um, can find a pathway to citizenship. Now, largely, these are children that were brought by their parents, most of them under the age of 10, Um who grew up here and had been here for, I believe, the time was somewhere between six and eight years. And I've met and know some of these kids. As far as culture is concerned, not the rule of law is concerned, they're American. I mean, they have been Americanized, acculturated, assimilated. They're American. But the reason that I have supported the concept of a DREAM Act is because of a different concept. Because of the idea of culpability. In criminal law, culpability plays a, um, a large role. Are you responsible for the situation you find yourself in? Are you responsible for the action that you took? Um, not every crime requires it. It's sometimes referred to as mens rea. Did you have the intent in your mind to break the law? Not, it's not always necessary. You don't have to know that you're breaking the law to break the law. Ignorance of the law is not a defense. That being said, moving beyond the law, there's no argument here. The Dreamers, just like every other illegal immigrant, broke the law. But more on a philosophical, moral level, the concept of culpability plays a very important role. And when I look at the children... Um, that we have referred to as dreamers in the past who were brought here by their parents, they lack the concept of culpability. They were piggybacked, many of them in here, on on the backs of their parents who did know they were breaking the law for whatever reason, for a better life for their children, for a better life for them. And the children themselves, having now been acculturated and assimilated and adopted into a country, lack the culpability of the rule they broke and now are ostracized between two worlds. So, the point I'm making to you is I've been supportive of the concept of the DREAM Act in the past. But I am not so foolish as to think that every position you take is pure. That clearly one policy is right and another policy is wrong, and none of them come with problems, or that they're all utopic and they solve all of our problems. I understood, or better yet, I do now understand the problems with the DREAM Act. First of all, as we know, one of them is the concept of chain migration. If you give one person status to stay in the country, especially if that person is a minor, what do you do about their parent or their grandparent? And on and on and on, chain migration. But the more important realization is the idea of unintended consequences. Well, if you establish a law like that, what precedent does it set for the future? What magnet does it create? What message does it send? I think we know the answer to that. I think what we're seeing right now at the border in Texas is the answer to the unintended consequences. We have... Over the last decade, seen an average of four thousand unaccompanied minors come into the United States since two thousand eight, when President Bush passed a very important law we're going to discuss, and then President Obama in two thousand twelve passed an executive action that to to allow dreamers to stay, to purposefully de emphasize deportation of minors. We've seen that number go from an average of four thousand a year to Fifty thousand to now the projection is ninety thousand. That's the consequence of a policy that I actually supported. How do we fix it? I'll give you my proposal. I want to hear yours. 888-900-3393 when we come back on Kane and Co.
0: this is Kane and cup part of the next generation of talk radio on the
4: blaze radio network
0: will Kane and se cup return.
2: Welcome back to Canaan & Cup. I'm Will Kane. You can follow me on Twitter at Will Cain. You can give me a call at 888-900-3393. Give me your three-point plan to fix the immediate crisis at America's southern border. Army of Sleeping Fat Guy on Twitter tells me, number one, take care of the people. Number two, reinforce the border. Number three, send them all back home. Johnny P. Boggs on Twitter says, number one, secure the border. Number two, cut aid to Mexico. And number three, send 200 million illegals home starting with the new arrivals. Let's talk about that. Because I actually think Johnny gets a couple things wrong. I don't think, uh, number one, that uh, cutting aid to Mexico is going to solve this problem because, of course, the 50,000 and projections of what would be 90,000 unaccompanied minors currently coming across our border, are not necessarily coming from Mexico. These are Central American kids coming from Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. Are they coming through Mexico? Yes. Could you make the argument Mexico itself needs to do more to secure its borders, who, by the way, enforces its illegal immigration laws much more strenuously than we do? If you're arguing Mexico should play a much larger role and you cut aid to Mexico in lieu of that, I think you might have an argument. I would also assume you would be opposed to the war on drugs, which much of our aid to Mexico goes to fight that war on drugs. But securing the border as it stands right now, that's an interesting concept. What would that do for our immediate problem? In order to answer that question, we have to correctly diagnose the situation we're in today. Now, here's the deal. Here's the process. Here's what's going on. This massive growth from an average of 4,000 unaccompanied minors up to 50,000 this year comes with an interesting detail. These kids are coming across the border and immediately turning themselves into border patrol. They're not trying to get away with the act of illegal immigration. They're trying to put themselves into the deportation process. They're trying to get in to our legal system. Now, why would that be? Because in 2008, President Bush and Congress passed a law that said any children coming from Central America, what is termed as OTMs, other than Mexicans, will not be immediately turned away at the border like a Mexican migrant would be. Because, of course, that's not the country they come from. And in order to get them back to Central America, they first have to go through a process that determines what you're sending them back to. What's the environment like? What's the criminal situation? Are they refugees, essentially? A judge hears these cases. Now, the catch is that the law stated while these children wait for their case to be heard, they're placed into the most humane system or home that can be found for them. Oftentimes that means relatives or cousins or friends or whatever that may be, and so the children are released. And they go off into the neighborhoods of Dallas and Houston and Chicago to stay with their friends and relatives pending their deportation proceeding. Now what do you think happens? You're an illegal immigrant, you're caught, you turned yourself in, in fact, and you're told to come back for a court date where it's possible you could be deported. What do you think happens? You never come back. Now when they release these families, they're giving notices which are termed permisos, and the word spreads the word spreads from Texas to Central America that if you make it to the United States, you get to stay. Now, you combine that 2008 law and that word of mouth with, all you have to do is get caught, and then they let you go to your family. You combine that word of mouth spread, and by the way, the data reflects this. When that 2008 law was passed, we began to see the increase from 4,000 a year to 8,000 to 12,000. It began to double, to triple. You combine that with President Obama's deferred action for central for deferred action for children, DACA, it's called, the executive order, which stated that they would not deport what was previously called Dreamers in the congressional legislative version, and now you have a situation where the word is spreading like wildfire. If you get to America, you won't be deported. The numbers then go from twenty thousand to thirty thousand to now fifty thousand this year, and as I have said, projections up to ninety thousand. Now, when that is the situation, when I just described to you, when that is the crisis, when that is the problem, the border isn't necessarily what's failing you. And putting three point seven million dollars, three point seven billion dollars, which President Obama has said will be his solution to this crisis, into the problem, also doesn't solve it. Whether or not that money goes more to the border, or whether or not that money goes to expediting the illegal immigration proceedings, the children are still released. And the children still disappear into American society. Money doesn't solve the problem. It's a policy problem. So number one on the plan to solve the current crisis has to be fixing that 2008 law. Number one has to be that. Now, what do you do? How do you fix it? Well, you treat them just like you would Mexican children. When the Central American children are caught, they're turned away just like the Mexican children are. Yes, into Mexico. Yes, into not ideal situations. But can you look at what's going on on military bases across Texas and call that ideal? For anyone, for Americans, for the children themselves, it's not ideal either. We're not dealing in a world of ideal. But something has to be done and the message has to be sent. Otherwise, not only does it continue, but it expounds. More and more and more kids will be coming across. That's number one. Start with fixing that policy. Now, I want to go to what. The contributors on Twitter have said, fixing the border. Now, there is, regarding the larger immigration debate, definitely a need to fix the border. If you're going to have a border, enforce it. If you're going to have a border, make it secure. Now, we can't simplify that in our minds. You and I talking together right now, we can't pretend that means building a 20 foot high fence from San Diego to Brownsville. It just isn't realistic. And in fact, that's not the way it works now, and you know it. Apparently, it's not exactly what President Obama understood. He didn't, I guess, completely understand that the Border Patrol is not necessarily on the border. That's what Governor Rick Perry from Texas had to tell Sean Hannity recently. Listen to clip one.
3: I'm interested in the prevention business. We ought to be stopping people from crossing that border, not apprehending them after they get inland. So, uh, and the President understood that, and and interestingly, he did not know that. He, he Uh, he, I, I, I'm comfortable that he was not knowledgeable about where his border patrol was stationed. And he gave me indications that he would work with them to move them upward where they can be side by side with the border or with the, uh, DPS, with local law enforcement, with the other, uh, individuals who are sending that message all the way down to Central America. Mm -hmm. Don't send your kids. Don't come up here because the border is secure. It is shut down.
2: Forty miles. 40 miles from the border. That's where many border patrol stations are. 40 miles away from the Mexican border, inside of Texas, that's where many border patrol stations are. I remember, uh, it was many, many years ago, one of my best friends got married and we had his bachelor party in Lajitas, Texas. That's way west Texas. Down around Big Bend, National and State Park. And, um, out there in the middle of the desert where one could drink As much tequila they can get their hands on. Good place for a bachelor party. That was one of the first times I realized, wait a minute, I just went through border patrol. I just went through customs, essentially. They just checked my car. They just checked us. And I'm still in Texas. And not only that, I still got a long way to go to get to the border, which Lajitas sits directly on the Mexican border, sits directly on the Rio Grande River. It is a little eye-opening when you first realize it. Wow, Border Patrol's way up here. What is this land between Border Patrol, this nether region between where we check people, and Mexico? It's still Texas. It's still America. Um, Apparently President Obama didn't know that either. He may need to take a bachelor party to Lajita's. Uh, by the way, did you see he was in Texas? You know that he attended a fundraiser. He also, did Did you hear that he... Franklin's Barbecue in Austin, Texas is the most popular barbecue joint in Texas, and many say the best barbecue in the United States. Franklin's Barbecue. I have not yet had the chance to go to Franklin's. The line outside of Franklin's Barbecue starts at 8, 9 a.m., and it it, it gets to be a three- to five-hour line to get a hold of Franklin's Barbecue. Anthony Bourdain, when he shot his CNN show, waited in line three hours to get Franklin's barbecue. President Obama cut in line. President Obama went right to the front of the line. Now, I mean, you could say, oh, he's the president. That's what he does. Boy, it did not sit well with people. Did not sit well. President cut into the front of a five-hour line to get himself some of the best barbecue in America. But that's neither here nor there. He did not know that the Border Patrol apparently is removed from the American border, at least according to Governor Rick Perry. We could reinforce that border more. We could put more resources. Would it resolve the current situation of the ninety thousand Central American kids turning themselves into Border Patrol. I don't know. Can you just turn them away? If you get right up against the border, can you turn them right there back into Mexico? You can begin to treat them like Mexican kids, though, and deport them immediately. It just suggest you got to go straight back to Mexico. By the way, another point: many have pointed out it's cheaper to fly these kids home, bring them in, then immediately fly them all the way back to Central America. Don't turn, don't turn them straight back into Mexico. Fly them all the way home. Cheaper to do that than to house them in these facilities for weeks and months on end. Some of these deportation proceedings can take almost a year long. Of course, they don't return, but the proceeding still drags out that long. Cheaper just to fly them back to Central America. So there's two points right there. Number one, fix the 2008 policy. Send a message. You will be sent home. Number two, yes, push back directly on the border. You're never going to make it completely secure, but you can make it more secure. I'll have a number of three when we come back, and I want to hear from you. What are your three suggestions on how we can fix the current immigration crisis? 888 900 3393 on
4: Kane and Cup. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. And
2: cop. You got your cup of coffee? Your newspaper? You still read the newspaper? I do. Or you just wake up and pick up that iPad, that phone, start scrolling. Still got to turn the pages. Still got to get that sense of completion that the Wall Street Journal or the Dallas Morning News provides you. Many of you on Twitter pointing out, why Why can't we just use, why can't we just put them on planes? What, what, what's wrong with flying the unaccompanied illegal immigrant children back to their home countries if it's cheaper what's the problem what's what's wrong with the process um let me go to pat in michigan pat what's your solution for solving the current crisis
5: hey good morning will good morning uh, i think I, I think i think you're right it is a, a three-step process and we have three classifications of foreign invaders coming into our country the minors who cannot send for themselves who can't help themselves who wouldn't survive on the street. They should be put into foster care. And I think those are our new anchor babies, okay? So when their parents show up, give them back to their parents and escort them to the border.
2: Well, wait a minute. Wait, mm-hmm. Okay, start. Let's, let's let's take these one at a time, okay? Well, sure. What if their parents don't show up?
5: You Well, so, then they go into foster care and then maybe go into adoption, but I think that should all be in private hands. Okay, but we'll hold see.
2: on, hold on, uh, Pat, just one at a time. But that would look a lot like the system we have right now. And the problem with that would be, and by the way, I, I agree with the humanitarian outlook on that. These are children. Let's put them in the best care that we can. The problem is the one that we've seen right now. It creates a draw. It creates a word of mouth. It spreads. And then your humanitarian impulse turns into a situation where at one point you had 4,000. The next point you have 90,000.
5: Well, what do those kids look like? Well, they're four, five, six years old. How did they get here? If, they're, if they didn't come with their parents and got, you know, dropped off at the border and say, here, here, Poppy go across and I'll be, by, I'll be with you soon. Okay. So I think they're anchor babies. I really do. And, and again, it's a humanitarian impact that means everything to me. We have to take care of children who can't take care of themselves. And that's the unfortunate fact of the matter.
2: I, well, I, I don't think it's unfortunate. I think it's just a, I, I, that's how human beings should operate. I agree. But I also think we can't operate in a vacuum, you know, and that's why I told you that I was also sympathetic to the DREAM Act, because we can't operate in a vacuum and ignore that that creates a potential magnet for the next wave.
5: Yeah, well, you and I differ on the DREAM Act. Is you're looking for a government solution, and I'd rather have a private solution, because if we rely on the government, it's going to get corrupted if not, you know, the first year or the second year.
2: Yeah, but the government's going to be involved because what we're talking about is laws, right? We're talking about the rule of law and changing it and obeying the rule of law.
5: Well, the more that's put in private hands, the better the chance for success in my mind. All right,
2: Pat, I appreciate the call. I've got to go to break. I really appreciate you calling in. Um, Feel free to call me, everyone. 888-900-3393. We're still going to talk about which sport reflects life in the fullest. You want to do that next? You wanna get philosophical with me? <laughs> Let's try that next on Kane and Cup when we come back.
4: You're listening to Kane and Cup.
0: Part of the next generation of Talk Radio. On the
4: Blaze Radio Network.
0: R. Kane. Kane and cup, R. Kane and Cup, only on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: Welcome back to Kane and Cup. I'm Will Kane. No S.E. Cup with me this morning. All by myself. Just you and me, working it all out together. The question I'm asking you is this: Is which sport most represents life? Now look. This isn't a sports show. We're not going to devote a half hour to figuring out why LeBron James wanted to go back to Cleveland. But I do think it's interesting to ask ourselves, as a metaphor for life, which sport serves as our example? Because it, it, then, from there, we can analyze exactly how you act in life, what plays you execute in life. That's a really fun conversation. 888-900-3393. But before we get to that, I just want to tie up a few loose ends. On our immigration conversation, Mrs. Kane, my wife, is jogging somewhere out there, running out there in California. I'm all by myself, folks. Wife and kids are in California. And she says to me, what's your number three? You said you had a three-point plan, and all you told us about was, number one, fixing the 2008 policy that treats Central American children different, differently than Mexican illegal immigrant ch- children. And number two, pushing the border patrol up to the border and turning those children away or, and or putting them on a plane and sending them home. That's one, that's two. What's number three? Come on, man, are you hosting a radio show here or not? You can't just Rick Perry this deal so you have a three-point plan and forget one of them. Um, by the way, if Rick Perry runs for president, is it possible to overcome that moment? I think it probably is, right? Actually, I changed my mind. No, you can't. You can't overcome that moment. You can't forget. Sorry, you can't forget your three-point plan. Um, My number three has to do with what the previous caller talked about. It's humanitarian um, reaction. You treat and take care of your existing population of unaccompanied children. I have to say, um, I'm proud of what Glenn Beck is doing in going to the border and— and taking resources and soccer balls and teddy bears and food and water to the children that are already here. You know, I know Glenn a little bit. I don't know him really well. We've hung out on half a dozen occasions. Um, we agree on a lot. We disagree on some. I have a job here. I have a job at other places. I don't do anything gratuitous. I don't tell you your dog is cute if it's not cute. I don't tell you your baby is pretty if your baby is not pretty. I'm not good at the gratuitous compliment, part of this whole authenticity thing that I try to make a real measure of my life that we started out the show with. So when I say that I'm proud of what Glenn Beck is doing, I don't care that I work for him or any of the other factors that could be interpreted through that statement. That's how you treat human beings. Because it's external from the policy problem. It's external from um, ending this crisis. You treat human beings as human beings, and beyond that, they're children. So to see Glenn and Mercury One devote resources to going and taking care of children, I'm proud of that. I'm proud to be a part of an organization that would do something like that. That's number three. You treat people the way they should be treated, like human beings. Uh, real quick, Steve in Florida, you also have a solution. Um, I've given you three. You have another. Let's hear it, Steve.
1: Uh, well, uh, basically it occurred to me that the problem is not only the border security, but basically releasing the uh, illegal immigrants into the United States. My idea was to uh, approach guatemala and uh, offer them a deal where we would lease uh, facility, a facility basically lease a land and build facility capable of housing say a hundred thousand people which would include people necessary for the processing on a 10-year lease to be handed over to them at the end of 10 years uh, basically take all the uh, the illegal immigrants uh, that we've collected bring them down to guatemala the Salvadorian government that the primary support for this facility would come through Guatemala. Uh, so basically, be an economic boom for them uh, would end up giving them a
2: the facility I mean, would be yeah. the facility would be in Central America.
1: Yeah, basically, it would be in Guatemala.
2: Well, what's the difference, so basically Steve?
1: Basically, we fly them down to Guatemala. The the kids would either be released to their home countries or brought into the United States from that facility, depending on the the disposition of their the uh immigration hey real area. quick
2: steve what's the difference between that and just deporting them why would we need to be a part of a facility in guatemala once they're out of the country the law has been fulfilled why would we be a part of any facility in guatemala uh,
1: well basically it would immediately send the message to mexico and central america that it is not a free walk
2: yeah but couldn't we just accomplish the same thing by deporting them to the airport in guatemala what do you need? I don't. I don't what I'm saying is I don't understand the need for this middle step facility. I, if you said it was in America, I would have understood that. Like having a facility we hold them in until we deport them or something like that. But that's not what you're saying, right? You're saying a facility that exists in Central America.
1: Basically, you would have to, to build a facility. Any facility that we're going to create now, it a single or multiple facilities, right. it's going to have to be created. So why not create it someplace that's going to help solve the situation that's going on in Central America, improve our relations with the countries, give them a boost, as well as solve our problems of releasing undocumented immigrants into our society.
2: Okay. Thanks for the call, Steve. I still think that we could just deport them. I think I mean you you fly them to the airport in Central America and you've accomplished the same goal. I don't know that's any more humane to have a facility down there than just releasing them back into the society and homes that they came from. Um, so but I appreciate the suggestion. All right, here's the question I've asked you. Which sport serves as the best metaphor for life? Now here's why I'm asking you this. If you think about the biggest trial you've ever had in your life, the toughest moment. In your life, personal or professional, and I've got a couple that I'm thinking of for myself right away. And some of them aren't too removed. Some of them are things I, I struggle with right now. Um, you ask yourself, well, how how did I respond to that? A, how did I get into that? How did I get into that situation? How did that situation occur in my life? And two, <laughs> A and two, uh, A, how did I get into it? And number two how did I respond or how do I respond to that situation? And I think sports actually becomes an interesting metaphor for life. Which sport represents life? Which sport actually encompasses that in life, which is we have things that occur in our life outside of our control. And I'm learning that. I promise you, I'm learning that right now. No matter how much will I want to exert on my life, no matter how much force I want to move forward with in dictating the path of my life, External forces play such a role. Luck, other people, <laughs> those burdensome other people. Um, so, which sport really becomes the story for life? David Brooks has a column in the New York Times which he suggests life is like soccer, it's not like baseball. This is apropos, of course, of the World Cup final tomorrow between Germany and Argentina. Side note. The third-place game is today between Brazil and the Netherlands. I mean, third place. It's such soccer to have a third-place game. All right. It would only be more appropriate if a third-place game ended up in a 0-0 tie. Um, Brooks says life is like soccer. First of all, he says baseball is a collection of individual achievements. You throw a strike, you hit a line drive, you field a grounder, primarily all of which are individual achievements. The team that performs the most individual tasks will probably win the game. That is the nature of baseball. But soccer is a collective game, a team game, and everyone has to play a part which has been assigned to them, essentially, which means they have to understand the game spatially and positionally and intelligently and make it effective the game of soccer is about controlling space knowing your context knowing the landscape and operating within those parameters within those constraints actually and that's life he says life is like that and you can never find yourself necessarily in a better situation unless The context, i.e. the other people in the world, the collective group of you, position yourselves into a better place. He says, most of us spend our days thinking we are playing baseball, but we are playing soccer. We think we individually choose what career path to take, whom to socialize with, what views to hold. But in fact, those decisions are shaped by the networks of people around us more than we dare recognize. He says, if you're obese, most likely your friends are obese. If you like to have intelligent conversations, it's most likely because you've been around people that have intelligent conversations. Innovation, even, he suggests. These places like Silicon Valley feed off of each other. They exist in a communal, symbiotic world. And that's like soccer, he says. And this is finally, this is an interesting thing. He says, Uh, let me simplify. Each close friend you have brings out a version of yourself that you could not bring out on your own. When your close friend dies, you are not only losing the friend, you are losing the version of your personality that he or she elicited. That's interesting. I I think we all know we are a little different around each one of our friends. Our personality does become a little malleable and adapted to whoever we're hanging out with or talking with. And because life is like soccer, in David Brooks' estimation, he said it's imminently impossible to predict. Life is impossible to predict. Where baseball, where there's a limited number of outcomes, you can have sabermetrics, you can have analysis, you can have data, and you can predict it. And he says that is not how life works. Well, I think David Brooks is wrong. I think life is not like soccer. I don't think it's entirely like baseball either. And I think actually one of my... Friends on Twitter, Donna, gave me the best suggestion. Life is like hockey. Let's talk about that. 888 900 3393. Which sport is life like when we come back on Kane and Cup?
4: You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network.
0: Cup.
2: which sport most represents life you guys are coming at me look at this on twitter um cory Emberson, baseball every game you see something new and you don't know how long it will last that's true we do not know how long life will last um jose what sport did you say life is uh most like you think i
0: said the best analogy or at least my my analogy is marathon. Uh, you, it, it's a test of endurance. Uh, it's an arduous task. You have to adapt to your environment. Sometimes you have to nudge the person next to you.
2: (laughs) Marathon has a context where, all right, that's good. A marathon army of sleeping fat guy says, I think it is like soccer. We spend our time kicking the ball around and just at the right moment we get a goal, but not very often. Crusader rabbit says life is like sailing. Put yourself at the mercy of the elements with the wisdom to navigate safely. Um <laughs> I'm going to tell you why I think hockey it turns out to be one of the best analogies, but you guys have actually lit up my phone lines on this. I'm gonna also tell you why this is important. Look, this is this actually matters, all right? Not to get all Joel Osteen on you who I've been accused of looking like on, on one occasion or another, but if sports are a decent symbol for life, if sports are a uh, uh a little reflection of life and we can see life play out on a field or a diamond, well I think it gives us some insight into how we should be behaving, how we should be, and here's my keyword, reacting in life. But real quick, let me hear from you guys. Jason in D.C., which sport boasts, most reflects life?
6: The uh, sport is the number one participation sport in the United States, which is bowling. <laughs> now let's, let's think through it really quick. You play on a team, but you have an individual score you have a bunch of people that do not have to be in any physical shape to play the game. <laughs> you could be drinking. You can, you know what I'm saying, like the number of people that are serious about it, you know what I mean, like there's a And there's
2: by a the way, this I'll, I'll of, add to your analogy, many people take it way too seriously.
6: And those that don't do it either, they just basically go to have a good time. So, uh, you know, the interesting thing about it is we all keep trying to bring up these real sports. There are very few people that live their lives as highly competitive individuals like you would say in like a hockey or a baseball that's interesting you're right so you know if we're really saying what is indicative of humanity bowling is a more effective and it's interesting that it is the number one participation sport you in think, the united states
2: do you think bowling reflects um i think the one thing david brooks gets right is the element of chance in life and context and landscape bowling doesn't have that
6: well it you know the interesting thing about it is, you're trying to do the same thing over and over again and be precise about it. But even when you do hit the pins and you think it's exactly the same way, it doesn't mean they're all going to get knocked down.
2: All right, I'll, I'll go with you if we can make the lane like I, m- make the lane move. Like, yeah,
6: i, I was going to give you one thing. You know, you're, you I heard you were talking with Pete Dominic, and Pete keeps referring to you as a left uh, a, a right person. And I think it's important that you identify, self-identify yourself as a libertarian if you are because he keeps distorting that, trying to put you in, like, a uh, you know, that left-right paradigm.
2: You know why I don't do that, Jason? By the way, Pete Dominic's a friend of mine that hosts a show on SiriusXM. I don't know if Jason listens to that show or heard him on on this show, which he's called in on several occasions. Um, you know, Jason, I don't like labels, period, man. And it's not that I think... I don't want to be juvenile about it, but... And I think you can. People can be juvenile about it. Yeah, I, I'm... I'm Libertarian leaning. I I am also conservative on some issues. I just in in the end, I want to be an individual who has individual thoughts, each of which are 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 uh, I hope uh, thought out. And do do most of them align with things that we have labels for? Yes, but it's just I don't ever I don't know I don't like it. Yeah, I'm a libertarian. Yeah, I'm a conservative. I'm a Republican. I'm T I'm Tea Part. Whatever. I'm just listen. How about how about I explain myself? That's what I like to do.
6: My favorite thing though is most of the time when I'm ever having a conversation with most people when it comes to making decisions about politics the thing that always stands out is you notice the one thing they all have in common whether it be your traditional left or right person is that they always want to use force they never do it by persuasion
2: yeah I definitely hear that Jason I appreciate the call I'm going to consider baseball I'm going to consider baseball as a proxy for life Greg in New Hampshire
3: football is definitely the more uh, appropriate sport to reflect the American society why is that um, you look at soccer, soccer, you can take any one of the positions and put them in another position, and they're all the same. They're all like a socialism type thing. They're all the same, except for the goalie. But for football, you have guys that are weighing 300 pounds. and There's guys that are 150 pounds. You can't interchange them. You have a lot in life. You have a position in the, in the team. You have a plan. And you all execute the plan together with different roles within that, within that context. Uh, and mistakes do happen. The element of chance is very much there. The ball hits the ground every so often and you gotta scramble for it as a
2: team. Don't you think that makes life a little adversarial, you know? I mean, I don't know, the it gridiron, is. the the uh the 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 two lines, offensive and defensive line, clashing heads. Do you think life mm-hmm. is that adversarial?
6: Yeah, it's definitely adversarial. I mean, that's
3: how people get ahead. I mean, one company doesn't go hand-in-hand hand with another company, even though they're competitors. They
2: compete. Yeah, I know. And but, I'm, you know, as, as, as whatever label I just got done talking about labels, we are conservative libertarian. The idea that economics is a zero-sum game is an extremely progressive liberal thought that there's got to be a loser for every winner. And I don't believe that, that there has to be a loser for every winner.
6: How? Why not? I mean, Because
2: life's not zero-sum. We get richer, wealthier. Every generation, every decade gets better, um, at least economically. And... I don't think there has to be a loser for every winner. But still, we are imposing this on a game. We are trying to figure out which game, and most games have two sides. So football is, uh, is, is a – I think it's a, it's a decent illustration. Chris in California, you think the soccer uh, analogy is right on?
7: Yeah, I
5: think it goes back to the soccer feel. Like I was talking to the uh, screen caller. If you think about it, it's like soccer because, one, the point is of the teams. The, um, the way I see the soccer feel is like life. You know, you set up short-term goals, long-term goals, um, five, ten-year plans, stuff like that, and you, know, you have your close friends, uh, your family. Uh, they help you out with that goal setting. But you're the only one that can uh, kick the ball into the goal to go to your uh, to your goals. Right. So for me, it will be uh, soccer because soccer, you spend a lot of time kicking the ball around. Life. You spend a lot, you know, yeah. a lot of time planning. Kicking the ball around. <laughs> Getting
2: nowhere. Kicking the ball around. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Chris. I appreciate the call. Um, I'm gonna tell you folks why I think um soccer doesn't work. Okay? Because the power of the individual eventually matters. And I don't think accidentally kicking a ball in to get you there. Uh we'll talk about this for a little bit longer. On Cup, and 900 3393 When we come back.
0: You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network.
4: You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: Either I I love analogies way too much or you people are great. David Steenson on Twitter. Life's like racquetball. So many different angles, and you always have to be on your toes. Competition depends on your effort. Uh, Alex Simmons on Twitter. Life is like swimming. We are either working hard or treading water because we will all drown the moment we stop. Or Tammy in Kansas. Life is like fishing. Sometimes boring. Sometimes you struggle greatly. Sometimes you just enjoy the view, and friends make it better. And then Tomcat on Twitter. Life is like fishing. If your equipment, presentation, and or technique suck, blame Bush. (laughs) Uh, here's, uh, Here's why I think this matters. I actually think you can learn lessons in life from analogies and stories and illustrations. I think you can understand. For those who say life is real and sports are not, so the comparisons don't work, what I would suggest to you is then you shouldn't watch movies or read books or listen to stories or indulge in any kind of analogy. But the point I'm making is you should, because you learn lessons from all of these things. Life's not fair. You can do everything right. You can play the game exactly as it should be played, with all the effort you can muster and lose. Life's not fair. And that blows, you know? It really does. The Texas Rangers in 2011 were one strike away from winning the World Series twice. Not once. One strike away twice. And they lost that World Series. That's how life works, you know? And David Brooks is right. External factors and context and space around you affect you. They are the things that make it so that you can do everything right and still not receive the rewards you would tell yourself you should. If I do this right, if I perform the way I should, then it will all work out, but it doesn't. Again, I've experienced that personally and professionally. But that's where sports comes back in because life isn't just about action. Life's about reaction, What do you do with that knowledge? What do you do with the idea that life isn't fair? I told you Donna on Twitter appealed to me with her hockey analogy. Life is like hockey, complete with body checks and chipped teeth, but keep shooting for the hat trick. That's where soccer loses me. It's too random. It determines the outcome. Context, space, external factors, and then ultimately randomness determine the outcome. But that doesn't account for, again, the individual and the individual's ability to react. Yes, life can be unfair. But if you just stop there, you breed defeatism. You breed victimhood. It's true. Life can be unfair, but then what do you do? And, you know, when Ann Coulter writes that soccer actually reflects the end of American exceptionalism and she says it represents this collective and a denial of the individual, whereas in football you can have a Hail Mary, or in basketball, or a miraculous three-point shot, or in baseball, the individual home run. In soccer you have none of that. She's wrong. Um, soccer has its individual moments. You can, for every random goal you can point out a Pele or a Neymar. But I'd like to think life enables the individual a little more than soccer does. The individual and how it reacts to life's unfairness. And when we talk about American exceptionalism and the United States adopting soccer and this kind of lust to be like everyone else, to fit in, I think what you see across the world is actually the internalization of that problem. Defeatism. The acceptance of victimhood. Life's chance, life's context. None of us are individuals or special in any particular great way. And the goal, therefore, is to create the perfect context. To create the perfect space around people. Because, I mean, if that's determining the outcome, that's the best we can do. I do think she has a point there. That's not what should reflect our life. That's not what made America unique. That, what made America unique was actually the denial of that. You're not defined by your context, the situation in which you were born the people that would dictate the outcomes in your life. It was the empowerment of the individual. And the empowerment of the individual can't be reduced to the idea that you and you alone are the headwind in your life. No one can affect you. And like a bull rushing forward, your path is chosen before you. That can't be what individualism is. That can't be what American exceptionalism is. Yes, you get to define, but then you must be resilient then you must deal with life's chance. Then you must deal with life's context. Then you must deal with other people. Then you must deal with failure and falling down and all of these things. And then American individualism becomes very important. How do you react? you pick yourself up in the face of all that failure? Do you push forward understanding life's not fair? That, I think, soccer doesn't take into account enough. The power of the individual to dictate the outcome after every external factor has had its say in your life. I don't know what the appropriate metaphor is. You guys have given me some good ones. Sailing, bowling, hockey. Whatever the appropriate sport metaphor is for life, it needs to take into account chance. It needs to take into account context. Yes, David Brooks, it needs to take into account space. And the need for other people, both those that would impede your life and those that would make your life better, but it also needs to account for, ultimately, the individual's response to all of that. A game completely subservient to the collective wouldn't do that. A game completely subservient to the context wouldn't reflect life in that way. I don't think you get to dictate the win necessarily, right? Life's still unfair. But you still get to dictate your role in it. That's why I think sports is important. As a metaphor for life. So I'm going to go with hockey for now. Unfair. Chip your teeth. Other guys bump you and knock you down, but you keep shooting for that hat trick after you get knocked around. Sports is a metaphor for life. I'll tell you what else is... I was going to try to do an analogy there, and that just completely failed me. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you what else is an underreported story. How about that? The potential downfall of Obamacare via the judicial system, years after Justice John Roberts rewrote Obamacare to save it from itself, it's back in the court system. And this time, it's not so complicated. This time, it's pretty clear. I don't have to spend 10 minutes explaining to you the legal predicate or background of this case. There's only one question. There's only one question, and you can answer it if you want. 888-900-3393. Here's the question. Does the Supreme Court have the balls to knock down Obamacare when we come back on Kane & Cup,
4: Will Kane and S.E. Cobb.
0: We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Kane and Cup.
2: The Supreme Court have the balls to knock down Obamacare. 888-900-3393. In what is most likely the most underreported story of the year, there is a lawsuit that exists right now at the D.C. Federal Circuit Court level. From there it goes to the appeals court and there the Supreme Court. Three levels of appeal in the federal judiciary system. It's at the first level. The case is called Halbig versus Burwell. And the case alleges the following, that Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, as it was written and passed through the reconciliation process by the House and the Senate, reads that all of the subsidies that go into Obamacare that make the insurance plans provided by that law affordable All the subsidies that knock down the prices of those plans must be passed through exchanges established by the state. You can hear me doing that with my mouth, right? That's like my virtual air quotes because I'm quoting direct language from the law. Exchanges established by the state. That's the specific language. Now, it's not complicated. Last time we had obamacare go before the supreme court we thought it would be over the definition of activity and inactivity and what qualifies as inactivity and what qualifies as activity this is of course based on the commerce clause in the famous case of wickard versus filburn that the government could regulate interstate commerce which suggested activity the question became can inactivity the denial of buying an insurance policy qualify as interstate commerce and that was not only a Linguistic and legal exploration that was a somewhat philosophical exploration of what qualifies as engaging in commerce is inactivity itself. Engaging in commerce was complicated. Most or many legal cases delve into minutiae and history and precedent. They're complicated. This is not complicated. The language of Obamacare says the subsidies must be administered by exchanges established by the state. Here's the problem. Only 14 states established exchanges. 36 did not. So what do the people in those other 36 states do to receive Obamacare subsidized insurance policies? They go to the federal exchange. They buy insurance policies off of the federal exchange. And therefore, those are subsidies directed to directly from the federal government. Not according to the letter of the law, through exchanges established by states. Now what is the Obama administration's argument in response to this clear language? It is as follows. Well, you know what we meant. That's it. Come on. You know what we meant. And as evidence that that is a compelling case, come on you know what we meant. They offer you this. Well, if you knock these subsidies down to the individuals in 36 different states, you'll clearly kill the law. So you can see what we meant, right? Because that would kill the law. I don't think it's going to hold up. Or I don't think it should hold up. We're having a vast conversation recently about executive authority and the concept of separation of powers and how Speaker John Boehner has said and has brought forth a proposal to sue the president for abuse of executive orders, specifically regarding Obamacare. He has said that the delay of the employer mandate is a violation of the separation of powers of his authority under executive powers. This case is exactly that. Halbig versus Burwell. This is a very, very clear and important case because, A, if the court doesn't knock this down, this is the executive branch. This is President Obama passing subsidies directly from the Treasury out to the American people with no legislative backing to do so. That's free money, folks, handed out from the federal government with no law authorizing that power. How much bigger does an abuse of executive authority get than handing out free money from the treasury? Now the argument, come on, you know what we meant, ignores that Obamacare was one of the most hotly debated legislative processes in the last several decades. It was so contentious and so polarizing that it was passed through improperly the reconciliation process, which allowed Obamacare to go through with 51 senatorial votes. And the argument is that legislative process should be ignored. That that debate should be ignored. That the end result of that debate, the paper they wrote the agreement on that says exchanges established by the state should be ignored no matter how much debate, no matter how many votes, no matter how many different processes it went through, that should be ignored. In a sense, democracy should be ignored. And come on, you know what we meant? Should win the day. Now, some, should this rece- make its way to the Supreme Court? Some Supreme Court justices will be sympathetic to that message. I will tell you right now, Justice Stephen Breyer, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, they will be sympathetic to, come on, you know what we meant. They have indulged throughout their career in mind reading. They have indulged throughout their career in the concept of the spirit of the law, of using their position to intuit, supposedly, what the lawmakers meant, but more accurately, what they want to be the outcome. That is their modus operandi. That is their judicial philosophy. So we can't expect that anything would happen differently in this case. Come on, you know what we meant will be translated into, we think the law should continue to stand. And that's how they will vote. The question is how John Roberts and Anthony Kennedy would vote. Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas are textualists and originalists. They'll read the text and suggest, you know what? The legislators meant what they wrote down. Why should we assume differently? But what will Roberts do? What will Kennedy do? And that's not a legal question. That's not a judicial question. That's a question of do you have the balls to knock down Obamacare? Justice Roberts showed once he did not, and reinvented it. Would he do it again? Would he save Obamacare from itself again? Hallberg versus Burwell. We'll see a decision at the DC circuit court level, Any day now, early next week. When we come back on Cane and Cup, ugly words, banning words, the I word, illegal immigrant.
0: You're listening to Cane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Only on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: It's a cupless Kane today. No SC cup. Client solo this morning. Will Kane on Twitter at Will Kane. Give me a call at 888-900-3393. nine hundred three three nine three. We're going to spend this hour or much of it discussing the new dirty word, the new banned word, the I word. Illegal immigrant. Did you? Did you? Uh, did you drop that, Jose? You wanna drop it or do you have a beep? Illegal immigrant. Next time I say that, I want you to beep that. Movement to make it the equivalent of the N word. Or I don't know what else do we have? The F word, the C word, the P word, the R word. A ton of words. I violate I violate many of them on a weekly basis on this show. Not the racist slurs just the cuss words but illegal immigrant that soon could join the list the argument is we need to adopt the word undocumented worker that illegal immigrant is somehow dehumanizing that it's an epithet a slur and that undocumented worker that's more palatable more sanitized more acceptable the problem, as always is the case in political correctness, is accuracy. You see, first of all, let's just analyze the concept of undocumented worker. It assumes that who we're talking about is working. Um, and it implies oh, so left my papers at home. I'm undocumented, right? Like a conversation that wasn't transcribed or a contract that wasn't sealed. An oral contract that wasn't written down and memorialized. I'm simply undocumented. The implication and the precision are all wrong. Now let's move to the word illegal immigrant, which Jose has yet to begin to beep. The reason it's not a slur, the reason it's not dehumanizing is because it is so Incredibly accurate. Let's take each word on its own. The word illegal means violating some official rule or mechanism. The word immigrant means somebody moving from one country to another, usually for permanent residence. Exactly. It's exactly what we're talking about here. It's the most neutral and technical term you could conceive. It's the kind of term you would imagine would be the solution to a slur. Illegal immigrant. Now, is it true that there are people out there that say it like this? Illegal immigrant or legal immigrant. With a tone or a context that has some malevolence behind it. Yes, surely. Surely there are people that would say it or use it in that way. Just like the definition of the word is was malleable to some. Tone and inflection are malleable to many, to all. You can infuse any word with malevolence via your tone and context. But is that how we begin to define them? And is that how we begin to ban them? And is that how the ones we begin to make a list of the acceptable and unacceptable, simply by our feelings, our sentiments. Beyond that, not just our individualistic feelings and sentiments, because remember, we're imposing standards upon other people and branding them as such, right? You are racist, or you are insensitive, or you have no empathy based upon the words I hear you using. No, we are not just doing that individually. We do something even more brainless. We outsource it to the consensus of the mob, What do most people think on this? Actually, we don't even go with most people. We just go with the most vocal people. The people that are yelling, what do they think? The people that are angry today on Twitter, what do they think? That's the new dictionary. Not the one that was written down, not the technical term. The grunts on Twitter. The 140 character blurts of outrage and anger and sentiment and feeling that go viral, that's our new dictionary, and we need to check in with it on a daily basis, because that's the point, by the way, of moving away from commonly accepted English language terms. Catch bad guys, validate good guys. If you keep the bar moving, you can keep catching the people you want to catch. You can keep branding them as evil or wrong, your opponents. And more importantly, you can brand yourself as virtuous. If it's a constantly sliding scale, if it's a constantly moving target, you can validate your own virtue. You can set traps and award medals if you're part of the group that moves the bar. That's what we want to replace the de- dic- dictionary with. With feelings and sentiments and consensus of mobs. Sally Cohn writing on CNN.com. Sally Cohn, a friend of mine, somebody I enjoy debating, somebody who I disagree with vigorously on almost everything I can think of, um, wrote on CNN.com. The I word is the new N word. She writes as follows. Once upon a time, the N word and the F word were utterly acceptable terminology and undermining not only the basic rights, but basic humanity of black people and gay people that those terms seem radically inappropriate and out of step with mainstream culture now is only because social movements and legal and political changes have shifted the landscape. Correct. But make no mistake about it, words matter, not only in reflecting certain dehumanizing attitudes towards historically marginalized groups, but in actively perpetuating and rationalizing that dehumanization. Yes, but see, the word didn't do that. The mind of the speaker did that. And when you take a technical and neutral term, you're actually empowering the speaker that would use it ugly. Because you have warped it. You have bent the definition of the word to the mind of the person you would hope to marginalize. Sally points out, The organization Race Forward has a campaign to get media organizations to drop the I-word in their reporting. And I did not know this, by the way. The AP, USA Today, and Los Angeles Times, and many other outlets have dropped using the word. I didn't use it, Jose. But the pressure continues on the New York Times, the Washington Post, and radio and television outlets. And the campaign around media usage is just one step towards influencing and ultimately ending the use of the word illegal by everyone in America. I'm sorry, Sally, that makes no sense. Here's what we must do. You cannot exercise the word illegal from the American language, the English language. You cannot banish it to the corners. Let's do this. Let's invite Sally onto the show, into the room, not technically into the room to debate this. When I come back on Cane and Cup, Sally Cohn joins me to defend this position in about four minutes on Cane and Cup.
4: This is Cane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. on the Blaze Radio Network. Joining me now is CNN contributor,
2: CNN columnist. My friend. I think I'd say my friend. Yes, Sally Cohn? Is that, would we say we're friends?
7: I would say we're friends, although I have to just say it. I just realized I'm not following you on Twitter. What are you, I just fixed
2: that. Good, thank you.
7: You're not following me either, so what friends are we?
2: I'll fix that. Um, what do you think? You think that we disagree on um, what? 100%? 90%? of things? What do you think?
7: Well, come on. Like, even the most, uh, you know, the people who disagree the most strongly in life, you know, right now in our society, even then I still think they'd agree on 80% of things. 80? Oh, come on. Uh, You know, like, think about life. You know, like, uh, you and I probably agree that donuts are delicious. (laughs) The pools in the summer are really enjoyable. Uh, You know, that human beings should be treated with dignity. I mean, like, these are... We agree on most things. It's the sort of things we end up fighting about are a relatively small part of existence. Okay,
2: that's kind of interesting. Well, whatever that twenty of the twenty percent, you and I probably disagree on nineteen of it. So, of the,
7: yeah. <laughs> here's it but I've said better, this. Sure.
2: I've said this. Look, agreement is not a prerequisite to my friendship. Authenticity is. Agreement is not. That
7: you, is true. Well, you live in New York, man. So, <laughs> if that was your standard, you wouldn't have any friends.
2: I gotta tell you, Sally, the I word is the new N word. This, I don't just disagree with you on this. I'm gonna because I'm because we're friends, okay? And I'm gonna be authentic. I don't just think you're wrong on this. I think you're dangerous on this. I think this is yeah. I think this is destructive and bad. And I'll tell you why. But I think this this is the kind of thing that leads societies in the wrong direction. You're politically correcting us into the inability to communicate accurately. That's what I think. Make your case on why the I word should be the new N word.
7: Wow, I'm so more interested in your case. Um, uh, You know, look, the analogy that I draw in the piece is that once upon a time, throughout history, we have used words which are technically accurate. They are technically definitionally accurate to describe certain groups of people. And yet they are not only unkind, but they are deliberately dehumanizing. So, uh, you know, the N-word is one example I use. I'm happy to use, and, and I will, you know, the F word, the, you know, faggot, right? In the in a certain era of time in America, and certain people, unfortunately, still, this is a very common word. It is not an inaccurate word, right? It's not, so everybody's sort of saying, I'm, I, well, this is technical definitions. This is not the point. It was a cool word. And when we're talking about immigration reform, look, I think we can argue vociferously. You can be against immigration reform. You can feel whatever you want to feel. But, this sort of deliberate, and I think it is, even even if that's not what you intend when you're using a word, but this, this this sort of deliberate choices we make around language shape how people are seen in the society. Okay, so I don't think we need to dehumanize people who are coming here, whether you like it or not.
2: I don't know that you're correct. I can't rebut you specifically on the N-word and the F-word having technical grounding at one time, but let's just submit to that for a moment, okay? Um, those are, by the way, much more slang terms than a term like illegal immigrant um the, whom? what's that
7: you think they're you think those are worse
2: no they're slang you know what i mean
7: it's slang oh but, but
2: they're slang they're not. not
7: calling people illegals right now is is slang and you know this is no really no, no no no
2: see it's not it's though it's te-
7: through, the, <laughs> through the lens of history if we were talking right now will in the 1950s you wouldn't be saying that right i mean it was a it, you know it, it's sort of interesting how we we transform our understanding of how common these words were, uh, I mean, incredibly common at various points in history. But we can't now, we confuse
2: commonality. We can't, we can't confuse common usage with technical correction. That's, that's the difference, okay? And what my argument to you is this. The term illegal immigrant is not imbued with any negativity. Now, I'm not suggesting that some out there don't tonally give it what you are hearing, but on its own, the word has an objective definition. And it's not imbued with any sentiment, no feelings attached to it. And it's precise. It's accurate. It, it, it actually communicates exactly the situation we're having a conversation about. And I don't understand by what standard you move off of that objective definition. And your argument to me is because some people use it with a negative tone. Well, then I require you to explain to me how many of some people get to change objective definitions to words.
7: Well, well, first of all, look, to be super clear about one thing, and it's sort of fascinating when people accuse me of this, I'm not suggesting we ban a word. I'm not talking about censorship. Last I checked, I'm not an arm of the government. Uh, Suggesting that we be more thoughtful and and considerate in how we use words is not the same, is not tantamount to censorship. So, number one, people can do whatever the heck they want to do. I'm making a recommendation. Uh, And, you know... Again, it's sort of it, 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 this the the inclination people have to draw distinctions between these various words. Um, you know, I'm not the first person to do this, right? So, civil rights activists uh, and undocumented immigrants have formed alliances around this, right? Because even back in the day, right? Again, our, our census history is so short. In the 1940s and 1950s, people used the word and the N word. They didn't always mean it in a tonally derogatory way. So in the same sense you're saying now, it wasn't that it was, you know, inherently imbued with a certain kind of meaning. It was just a common word, but it was still considered to be not the most I don't know, not the most certainly dignifying, dignity conferring word choice, right? Civil rights organizations' positions,
2: I'll be honest with you, sometimes uh, the position of civil rights organizations um, on these types of issues, I do not give much weight because I do believe that the there is an existence of a victimhood industry and I think it it's well, it's, it's, well but look look, but look we it serves their own like self-interest.
7: Interest. But, well, but, but hold on what okay. I'm
2: telling you is it serves their own self-interest and so they they have uh, causes beyond simply the one you and I are debating. They have self-validation and things like that to well, and look, to, to to perpetuate.
7: Well, I think there's another we sort of have the counterfactual argument here too, right? Which is all I'm simply saying is, is that especially if you actually talk to people they feel like calling people illegals, right, is dehumanizing. I don't think you have to think that hard about why that would feel that way. First of all, you've, you've, you've taken, uh, even, if, even if we could argue about illegal immigrants per se as opposed to illegals, once you sort of start to call people illegals, you've stripped them of all their other humanity, all their other characteristics, and you've made them into just this one bad thing that you think they've done.
2: Okay, so here's the right? counter-argument. It, Here...
7: it, it's, and so you should explain to me, you should explain to me, right? Because in other words... I'm going to. Seems, <laughs> hang on, hang on. It seems to me that the reason y'all want to cling to it so much is that you realize...
2: Don't you go throwing around, y'all.
7: Biasing thing. So tell me why it's so important to you to use that word as opposed to any other.
2: I'll tell you why because precision and and objectivity are important to me. Your your invocation that some people um use it ugly and people hear it as an affront is doesn't satisfy me because he, here's the thing. If you move off of objective definitions, you start defining words according to consensus and feelings. And 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 one day it won't be just illegal immigrant that is dis, that is that is considered um, somehow unvirtuous or ugly. It will be whatever the current Vogue term is. It'll be undocumented worker. That too. Because you know what? There will always be somebody with the ugly feeling. The feeling is what matters here, by the way. Not the word. The feeling underneath it, that's the true thing that we should be attempting to alleviate. And what hold on. The feeling yeah. will remain, and then that will be transferred to undocumented worker. And you'll have a new... Cause and what yesterday was pure will tomorrow be ugly. And only thing defining words then is feelings, causes, mobs, and consensus. It's important to me, and I think and this is why I told you at the beginning: it's dangerous to societies to have objective things we can communicate with words that we all agree upon the definition of. That's a, that's like a foundational thing in society.
7: Right. But look, I mean that's true, but it, it's technically true. You could call me. Gay. You could call me a dyke. You could call me a homo. Those would all be true, right? But I don't know that those are.
2: I don't think those are the dictionary precision, objective terms like illegal immigrant.
7: But but you could also say unauthor. I mean, that's, that's that's hysterical. It's like it's like the dictionary was born out of the what i mean they're all creations right language yeah but is were they created with will? the
2: negativities imbued in them were they created with the negativities as a part of them or not see what i'm saying is a lot of those words like the in word or the f word were created to be negative not to not
7: necessarily well. not necessarily and 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 again and it's it's you know it's sort of Again, we make choices with language. So you could, we could have just as easily, in the in your all-powerful dictionary, said unauthorized immigrants, or undocumented immigrants, or uncertified immigrants, or any other thing. The choice of the word "illegal," and then the translation of that into just calling people illegal. But
2: it's more precise right? than undocumented, Sally. And it is. Why on earth do
7: you think it is?
2: It is illegal because it's a violation of of of, of a, an official rule to immigrate outside the bounds of those rules. So illegal is actually describing the situation. Undocumented suggests you forgot something. Oops, brought didn't didn't bring the documents with me.
7: You know, it, it's uh, we moved away from calling people aliens. We've stepped on. Why don't you just call people illegal aliens? Technically, well, I don't think that's a slur. Code. I don't
2: think, think that's a slur.
7: Legal code. That's correct, right? But we've moved away from it.
2: Hey, will you hang out for a little bit, for a few more minutes, or do you have to go? Uh, I know you have uh, families.
7: Can, no, no, no. I can. I can. You got me for a few
2: more. <laughs> okay. I'll, yeah. I'll keep you for a few more. Keep this up. I appreciate Sally. Uh, let's keep this debate going when we come back on Kane and Co.
0: this is Kane and Cup part of the next generation of talk radio on the
4: Blaze Radio Network
0: Next generation of talk radio, Kane and Cup, is on.
2: Welcome back. I'm still hanging out with my friend Sally Cohn, who has an op-ed up on CNN.com. You can go check it out. That says the I-word is the new N-word. Sally is arguing that because um, it, it is hurtful to, to some who we would define as illegal immigrants, we should be sensitive to that. And um, you don't want to ban it, you said, Sally, but you want to uh, recommend that people don't don't adopt that term. I think, on the other hand, that you are sacrificing precision for feelings and objectivity, <laughs> like the dictionary, for consensus. So let me ask you this: What if we changed? What if we changed it to um, unlawful immigrant or criminal immigrant? Would that work?
7: Um, you know the the. I mean, look.
2: The, Those would be precise. It, are they hurtful? You're,
7: you're asking the wrong person, right? I'm obviously not. Uh, an undocumented immigrant, but the folks, you know, in that community have come together and they said, look, we'd like to be called undocumented immigrants. Now, you know, Will, maybe, again, to the sort of counterfactual on this, like, what's the big deal? Why does it, I mean, other than I, uh, even if I seeded your points about accuracy or whatnot, which I just don't, as you can tell from the piece, I don't give that much credence because that argument's been made in the past In other words, why wouldn't you just want to call people what, doesn't hurt them. You can still argue about the policy. It doesn't mean you.
2: It's you like in uh, the problem. It's like in Coming yeah. to America. His <laughs> mama named him Clay. I'm gonna name. I'm gonna call him Clay when he <laughs> when talking about Muhammad Ali changing his I mean, name. i like, Muhammad Ali. I
7: understand y'all think this. Like I, I've never quite understood the sort of what I feel like is a kind of knee jerk react conservative reaction to political correctness. Like political correctness is people. This was like uh, when Kevin Williamson wrote this whole attack piece on Laverne Cox, the, act, the trans actress and Orange is New Black. You know, and and he's not gonna call her a woman because that like do, who the heck cares? Call, do, call people what they wanna be called. Do well, you know do I'm gonna tell you why it's a big deal. Because the I think that the
2: here's the here's why it's a big deal, okay? It's because reality is objective outside of words, and the attempt should be to make words reflect reality. And And I think what we see is you working in reverse. If you can change the word, then you can change reality. The truth is they have immigrated illegally. It is a violation. And so calling it that is just being accurate. And you changing it to undocumented workers an attempt to change the reality and change the the positioning of the situation, which is a law has been broken. And I don't know if you're doing that. But I think there is often an agenda to do that. If I can change the word, then I can change the reality. And well, you need to make right, your you need to make your policy argument on illegal immigration in that in that case without politically correcting the words. You see?
7: Well, you're you're here's where I will give you that you're right, which is that the word is an attempt to change the reality, but the reality that's attempting to be changed is not is not some presupposed notion around. Policy, in other words, I don't think it gets you any further down the road toward changing policy to call folks undocumented immigrants. Oh, I think really the people funny. that want that what, to
2: happen definitely but, believe it. What,
7: well. But what it does do is it gets you toward humanity. So you're right, nonsense, which is like you, wanting humane treatment. That is that is the sort of wanting the conversation about our immigration law and our borders and all the things that this conversation circumscribe to, to be focused on everything you want to talk about and the fact that these are human beings with dignity as opposed to just, you know, dirty, rotten, ugly criminals. I think you're right? giving... I mean, that I, is a... that You're exactly right. That's but I think
2: you're is. giving the offenders too, too much power. That's what I think. Um, look... I think you can say illegal immigrant and take truckloads of supplies and food and water and toys down to the kids held in these detention centers. I think you can treat someone humanely and still uh, describe them accurately. And I think what you are doing is you're taking the person who would use it tonally, negatively, right, and giving that person power. You're letting them define the word ultimately. You're letting them make what is an objective definition into an ugly thing. But
7: can I, can I ask you this? Uh, I could go the other way, right? By not choosing to change the language to to make a more sort of sensitive and humanizing choice, you're giving you're giving wide berth to the people who would use it in an offensive no, way. No, because, because it exists externally standing, from them. You're not standing in their way.
2: No, because it exists you're, externally from them. You keep moving it. I want to stand still. <laughs> but hey, don't ain't this here's fun, a here.
7: Will? ain't this fun? It is,
2: and I want to ask you this broader question real quick. I'm going to let you go sure. in one sec. I am of the belief, I got into this argument on the view and I've had it in numerous We are elevating words way too high. I don't mean as a status. I mean I believe in, you know, the objectivity of words, but meaning it's become the ultimate offense, right? All of these words, the F-word, the N-word. That is like how we define mm-hmm. our virtue. It's how we define our virtue and our and our vice. And I just think we have done too much of that. We have used words as our proxy for the human being and what they are, and I don't know that we're accomplishing in the end what we want to accomplish by using words as our, our big societal litmus yeah,
7: test. Yeah, I don't, I mean, this one, this one is complicated, right? And this is why I never make broad pro- proclamations, number one. This, number two, this is why I try to never use words like racist. I use words like racial bias, um, because uh, uh, calling, you know, sort of saying that because of what someone did, you have a sense of who they are and how they feel in their heart. Is, is In my case, is a leap I'm unwilling to make, uh, you know, from, from, from your language or from whatever, whatever action you did, right? And more fundamentally, and this is what goes to why, you know, people say, oh, it's, you, you're the thought police or something. No, God forbid, the opposite. You know, I don't, I don't think we can change or want to change or certainly uh, police what's in people's hearts and minds. But I do have an interest in people behaving in a way... That is kind and thoughtful and respectful and responsible toward others. There's a great video folks can look up by this guy named Jay Smoot, and he talks about the difference between what people do and who people are when it comes to racial bias, or he does use the word racism. And I think that's important. You know, I don't care if Donald Sterling in his heart is a racist. I don't care. And that is a useless argument to have. All his black friends coming to his defense, who cares? I care if he does racist things and says Agreed.
2: Things, actions. Things, right? Actions and matter, not words.
7: Actions matter. But, but sometimes the words are right. So if he went out and uses the N-word, again, I don't care if he is, you know, in his heart. I don't care. Except let me a ask you this. racially insensitive thing to do, if and I, he should be held accountable for his actions. And if, actions are words.
2: And I want you to be honest. I don't BS in this, and, and that's why I like having you on. Again, I used the word authenticity earlier. I want you to be honest with me. You know I'm committed, you can hear it in this argument, to using the term illegal immigrant. Tell me, what do you think of me for using that term? And be 100% honest.
7: Well, look, I, I think you've made a choice, which you're rationalizing based on your notion of definitional integrity, but I think it's more motivated by your fear that using a more humane word would lead to more humane policy outcomes. And I, I think that's
2: an unfortunate choice. No, so you, you but you you've you've backwards rationalized me. <laughs> you have because I use the term, you rationalize that I'm fearful, not what if I told you and I'm yeah, not, but what if I, I told you I was do. for open borders? And I if I what if I told you I was for open borders? I'm not. But I think it's an interesting argument. Uh, what if I told you I was for open borders and I think the word illegal immigrant is precise? I know people that hold those two positions, by the way. How do you reconcile that? I would be
7: fascinated to talk with those people, but you don't. You're giving me a hypothetical that I can't Anthony Randazzo, friend
2: of mine from Reason.
7: I can't probe you on it, right? Because, you know, look, again, I think (laughs) words do have meaning. I mean, I—
2: Well, we agree on that, then.
7: (laughs) Yeah, I've had this argument with— But but you kind of dodged, like, you know, homosexual is a dated word. That's not
2: a slur, but that's not a slur. But
7: it's, it's, it's considered, and it's, it's not in the same category, but it's considered to be passé, a little, it, it, it is a...
2: Yeah, we're going to have word. to check in with Sally on all the words every other week. No, but don't you think so, dude? That homosexuals... Around, is... like,
7: I saw you yesterday, and you were talking about the gay swim team. You weren't talking about the homosexual swim team, right?
2: Well, just because I was doing colloquialisms. I wasn't really making a value judgment.
7: <laughs> right, but it's, it's, it's like a, you know, it's, it's a, right, there's certain words, right? There are certain... I mean, Negro, right, was a technically correct term once upon a time. When people say it now, the hackles in the back of our neck go up, <laughs> right? You the Language changes, language evolves, and yes, we make meaning through language, and, and, we, and people identify themselves through language, and I don't know. Yes, maybe this is what ultimately makes me more of a liberal than you. I think people should be able to have some say in how they're defined. That's a shocker.
2: <laughs> Listen, uh... Uh, two things. I think you need to publish a book so we can all keep up with what's the... Uh, you're going to have to publish often on what's, what's the acceptable uh-huh, language.
7: Uh-huh,
2: uh-huh. <laughs> uh, otherwise, you're just trying to catch other people. <laughs> um, but uh, more importantly, thank you for coming hey, on. I really nice, always enjoy this. appreciate it.
7: Nice to hear your voice. i yeah. okay. um, have a good weekend, man. I'll see you.
2: Okay. Take Bye. care. All right. I got a few calls. I want to get to them when we come back on Cane and Cup. And I want to tell you about this crisis in Canada. We're running out of Nightcrawler. Earthworms, news you can lose. When we come back on Cane and Cup.
0: This is Cane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. 888-900-3393. Kane and returns now.
2: Welcome back. We've got time for a few calls on political correctness. Call me quickly at 888-900-3393. You guys are all over it on Twitter commenting on that debate, which just had with Sally Cohn, who I appreciate coming in and having that debate. I always enjoy disagreement. I always enjoy the interaction. I don't care how wrong I think Sally is. I mean, I care. But, man, I like the, I like the back and forth. Uh, Phil in Maryland. How you doing, Phil?
3: Uh, Doing good. Yes, uh, I just uh, thought of an idea. Uh, You know, she agreed that they're individuals, correct? Yes. And we all agree a law is a law is a law. So just get them a nice shirt with the letters LBI on it. A law-breaking individual.
2: You know, my guess is, I asked Sally whether or not what if we changed it to unlawful immigrant or criminal immigrant and she didn't say that would work? I think she deferred to self-identification, right? And I think that here is the logical flaw that Sally makes and many like that make is that that logic appeals to me, um, Phil. It does when you say, well, I want to call myself—I made the joke about coming to America. If you remember the, the debate in the barbershop where uh, Cassius Clay has changed his name to Muhammad Ali, and one of the barbers says, I'm going to call him Cassius Clay. If his mama named him Clay, I call him Clay. Another says, "Ah, if the man wants to be called Muhammad Ali, I'll, I will let him call himself Muhammad Ali. I. It appeals to that part of me, right? We all get to call ourselves what we want to call ourselves, our names, our uh, self-identification, our deaf you know how we how we define ourselves. Yes, we all want to claim how how we are, name ourselves, define ourselves. But when you're talking about something larger, you have to have precision. You have to have objectivity. And Sally's letting the personal appeal bleed into the objective need for definition. So my guess to you, Phil, is law-breaking individuals wouldn't work because it wasn't chosen by the group of people we're talking about, who she wants to allow to self-identify. And I also think they just don't want to reconcile the fact that it's against the law because they don't want it to be against the law. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay. <laughs> All right, Phil. I know I gave you a lot to chew on. I appreciate the call. <laughs> um, I think that's what's going on. I think there's an attempt to adjust reality, the policy, the culture. Don't want it to be against the law? Don't call it against the law. And also be overly empathetic. I want the individual to be able to identify themselves, to be able to define themselves, so I allow society to identify itself. And what you lose in the process is objectivity. You use a foundational, fundamental aspect of society, and that is a commonly held language, language that we can all agree upon. Yes, yes, there are ugly words. Yes, ugly words exist. But constantly moving the ball, A- messes up our ability to communicate with each other, and B, only enables the ones that want to use ugly words. (laughs) They get to now determine which words none of us get to use anymore, which ones are imbued with negativity. I'm going to put a pin in that. That's the feather in the cap. That's the icing on the cake, the candle. Done with that debate. Only got a few minutes left before I turn this thing over to Chris Salcedo. Um, In Dallas short short news you can't news you can lose this week this is usually se cups kind of thing to do here but I saw this in the paper this morning headline The Wall street journal worm shortage bites fishing trade boy this got my attention I did not know this most night crawlers you guys know night crawlers that's the worm you use when you go bass fishing you hook up and see if you can catch yourself a perch a crappie or a bass in your local pond or lake um big old fat night crawlers come from Canada didn't know that Um, and apparently because of a long winter, the nightcrawlers buried themselves way underground. They got too deep. They didn't come up. So they literally harvest these things in the wild. Go out there and scoop up millions of nightcrawlers. Put them in those uh, styrofoam cups with the loose dirt and send them to you out there in Pottsboro, Texas to take to Lake Texoma. That's where they come from. But they can't get the nightcrawlers because they buried themselves so deep. So the price of night crawlers has doubled. It has doubled. What is it? Where a year ago, for a uh, thousand worms was forty-five dollars per thousand worms. It's up to eighty dollars per thousand worms. Never seen a year like this. So the man interviewed in the article, who's been involved in the night crawler industry for decades, there you go. So I guess when we say what sport is most like life and we suggest it could be fishing, there's one of your external factors to determine your outcome. You might want to catch the bass, but the night crawlers are getting more expensive. It's been a fun morning with you all by myself, hanging out with you. I appreciate the calls. I appreciate the tweets. We'll be back next week on Cannon Cup. Thanks, folks. See you then.
4: You're listening to Kane and Cop.
0: Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the
4: Blaze Radio Network.